0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Matthew today, and we're going to be looking at a, a, uh, two separate um, little passages. Um, he, one is a healing of two blind men, and the other is the healing of a man who is unable to speak. So, so what we've done so far, remember... Jesus just healed um, a woman who had an issue of blood for twelve years, as well as uh, restoring a, a girl, a daughter of a ruler, to life. And so now he's going on from there. So he's he's leaving that location, and as he passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, "Have mercy on us, Son of David." He they're asking uh, for for something. And we see this in, in, other, in the other synoptics when Jesus passes through Jericho, which is where he meets Nicodemus. Uh, when he passes through Jericho, we see this same uh, thing with blind Bartimaeus crying out this, this very thing, have mercy on me, son of David. And so the, it, there's a messianic uh, statement embedded in that. So to to call Jesus the son of David is not to say, hey, I know what your ancestry is. No, it's to call him Messiah. We recognize who you really are, which is interesting because there are a couple of blind men, but what they've heard of Jesus, because what we're told right before this was the report of this, the raising of the girl from the dead, went through all the district. Um, And so here we get... These men, who have probably heard that story, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David, crying aloud at him in this place. And so they recognize him as Messiah. Well, they have sort of a, uh, an expanded view of Jesus as Messiah. What is it they particularly want and need? And that sometimes defines what Messiah means. Right? So, so they would have known the Messianic prophecy in um, Isaiah 35 and 36. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And then goes on to say, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So they, they would have known that prophecy and And so they would have heard of Jesus raising this child from the dead, and, and now they're lining up to get theirs as well. So it's it comes down to what do you need? So <clears throat> Jesus enters the house and the blind man came to him there. men came to him there, and Jesus said to them, "Do you believe that I'm able to do this?" And they said to him, "Yes, Lord, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what they're asking, It wouldn't seem Jesus needed to ask them the question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And then they said, yes, Lord. I mean, if we didn't believe it, why would we be following you? But he needed them to affirm that belief. In all the the, uh, healings so far that we've seen in Matthew, faith has been an important part of those healings. Every one that's been specifically given to us, because what we see with the paralytic It, what it says is when Jesus saw their faith, he did this thing. And then when the, the uh, ruler comes, and what does he do? He makes a confession of faith. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. That's a, that's a pretty straightforward statement of faith. The, the woman with the issue of blood believes if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And what does Jesus say? Take, faith, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And so we see again and again and again. The leper, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Statement of faith. The centurion, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And then he replied, after Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word for my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Truly, Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So again and again through this, it's always about faith. Now the one place, interestingly, where we don't see any faith at all that has anything to do with the healing is the Gadarene demoniacs. There's no sense of, of faith there, but we have to believe that Jesus is responding to something. And, and so he comes, and the demons have faith. It's an interesting thing. If, if you cast us out, can we go into this, these pigs over here? So there's a statement of implied faith in there. You have the power to do this. They don't say, if you're able to cast us out. They say, if you cast us out, can we, can we please go into the pigs? And so there's this faith that's in that, (laughs) that's in there. And so Jesus asks them to make a statement of faith. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. Then he touched them and said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. So at some level, he can be affirming their faith, but but it could have been sort of that scary moment. Do I have enough faith? Am I going to receive my sight back? According to your faith, be it done unto you. So there, there's a moment there that's sort of pregnant with possibilities, and those possibilities are both good and bad, right? I mean, we're going to prove your faith here in about two seconds, because <laughs> it could have been that one of them standing there blind still, and the other one's healed, but it, but it's not. <laughs> it's just, and, the, and then their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, "See that you tell, see that no one knows about it." But <laughs> they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. As I've said before on, on multiple occasions, maybe we're pursuing the wrong strategy regarding evangelism in the church. Maybe what we should do is tell people not to tell anybody. And then they'll go tell people like all these people did. But you couldn't shut these people up because Jesus had done something for them. And, and to say that see that no one knows about it, at some level it's like, Jesus, we can see now. People are going to notice. I mean, it's so Jesus is telling them not to tell this thing. This is the first time he's done this. He does it more often, and Mark records it more often. It's called the Messianic Secret. It's because his time had not yet come. And so the, the already there's there's crowds that are with him everywhere. These blind men even have heard of Jesus and they come to him. Um, and, and so what do you what do you do <laughs> with with that? When when Jesus heals you, you you're going to want to go tell people. We see that with the blind man that he heals in John 9, that, that this guy is willing to stand on his confession of Jesus. Why? Because of what Jesus had done for him. He's, he, he doesn't care if they put him out of the synagogue, because those people hadn't done anything for him all those 40 years that he had been alive. And so he didn't know them any debt of gratitude, certainly didn't know him any kind of obedience. Um, but his parents weren't willing to say that. But here, Jesus tells them, see, that no one knows about it. And and it is a little bit interesting to think that nobody would know that a couple of blind men could now see, but were told. And so I, I think, really and truly, the the book, the chosen, or that the book, the I don't know what you call it. I guess it's a television show um, handles this really well. I think that that they that Jesus is trying to to not let everything be about signs and miracles, um, but But when people come and ask him for things and express the faith that he can do them, then he does. But what Matthew tells us is Jesus didn't just tell them not to do it. He sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And so what we've been told right before that was the report of the raising of the girl from the dead went through all that district as well. And so then as they were going away, the blind men, Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was also mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So again, like the the leper, or not the leper, but the, like the um, like the paralytic. First things first, right? So with the paralytic, I, I believe first things first meant that there was a sin involved in the in the paralysis, and Jesus first proclaimed the forgiveness of sin, and then took care of the paralysis. Here, you get kind of the opposite of that. You get the, the first things first is the demon has to be cast out, and then the mute man spoke. So Jesus knew what was the important thing. So this, this demonic thing was, the, was apparently the cause of the muteness, because after that was cast out, then the mute man spoke to Jesus. And the crowds marveled, saying never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees says he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So already, this is the first real time that you see this opposition. You kind of see it a little bit with the scribes questioning Jesus um, concerning the forgiveness of sins for the paralytic. You see a little bit with, why is your master hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? But here, man, they go way over the top, right? I mean, Jesus casts out a demon, and their response to that is he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So they're already... Forming the conclusion that Jesus is not who he says he is. And he's not what it looks like he is. He is definitely not the Messiah. He is an agent of the prince of demons. I mean, what an unbelievable statement that is. What in the world has he done or said that would have caused them to believe that? The only thing that I can imagine, honestly, is a jealousy. Because they were unable to do these things. And here Jesus is cleaning up all the problems in Capernaum. He's raising people from the dead. He, he healed a woman who had been um, with an issue of blood for a dozen years. He's healed a leper. He's done all this other stuff. And now he's just healed two blind men. And, and a mute man is, is given the power to speak after demons are cast out of him. And their response to that is he casts out demons by the power of demons. I mean, what a very strange situation that is. What an odd conclusion that is to draw. So they're already looking at him as the greatest enemy they could possibly have. What has he done? What has he done? He's healed a bunch of people. He's raised somebody from the dead. And in all these cases, he restored them to fellowship. Because these blind guys, they can beg— um, they're they're allowed to beg because they have this this handicap, but they they they're also incomplete, wholeness is important, and so in in the temple, the wholeness is really important because you you can't bring blind, lame those kinds of sacrifices, and so there's a, there's a belief and a suggestion, that, like you see with the man born blind in John 9, that, that there's some sin involved some way or another, and he was born blind, so the question is, was there sin in his parents, or is it in him, that he's been born blind. It's the question that the disciples asked Jesus, and then it's also the conclusion the Pharisees bring against him when they say, you were conceived in utter sin. They're not trying to sort out where the sin is. They just know there was sin involved, else he wouldn't have been born blind. And so these people are sort of outcasts. They can be around the temple and all that kind of stuff, but they can't come in and worship because, because they're not whole. So Jesus is restoring these people to wholeness. He's restoring them to the community. He's restoring these people to the worship of the temple. And, and their opposition is, is that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. I mean, he's actually bring, bringing wholeness and growing things. I mean, you can see that certainly in the church today. You can see people who are jealous of other people's um, successes, You know, there are legitimate reasons to to criticize people, and then sometimes it it goes just, I'm jealous, or I don't like you, or whatever, and so I I, I try and keep myself away from uh, criticizing pastors and preachers, and and I tend to believe, unless you've got a history of it, that you have good intentions, you might have just been mistaken that day. But then after a time, you can see a pattern where people are, are preaching a false gospel, and and then you can say something about it, but frequently what you see is just jealousy that arises right from the start whenever something good is going on. Now, that's not to say we should jump on board with everything. I can remember a time, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe longer than that now. It must have been. Yeah, it would have been 15 years because it was before 2008, Um, I had friends that that were watching this guy on television and they believed that he was doing these miracles. His name was Todd White. Um, and and that they were going to go down that the woman had a, had a condition that made it really, really painful for her to sit down, um, or to do much of anything. She had an entrapped nerve that was causing the problem and they had been unable to get proper treatment or proper, um, surgery for it and so they were going to go down and see this guy and, and they suggested that I watch some and I watched a little bit and it was like I I just I no I'm going to be kind of skeptical about this well it, it blew up ultimately it, it 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 turned out that the claims were way beyond anything that was real and the guy was not what he what he claimed to be and we we've seen that again and again we've seen people get burned in the church by following after you know, false prophets and things like that but the other side of it is, like I said, we, we've got to be careful about that, because I've certainly been around ministries that because they were big and growing and all that, there was a lot of jealousy. When we first started the AMIA back in 2000, there, there were a lot of jealousy from within the evangelical ranks in the Episcopal Church, which is not a huge club, by the way. Um, but they were jealous that we had stepped out and done something. And then that jealousy just continued to rage on. And I watched it happen. In real time, in several different occasions, I can remember meetings when um, there would be leaders from the church um, and, and then you know, press that was affiliated with the Episcopal world, and then we would have these meetings down at Paul's Island, and, and uh, Chuck Murphy was just chairing the meeting, but it became obvious within a very short period of time in the meeting who the real leader was. I mean, there'd be bishops and all kinds of other people there who outranked him, in the ecclesial structure but what would happen is is that very very quickly in these meetings every eye would be turned every chair would be turned towards chuck because he was willing to lead and he, he wasn't willing to pontificate and delay he he believed that something needed to be done and he was the outspoken out front guy who would lead that and and then what would happen is is that the after the meeting and these were all private. I mean, it's not like they were covered in the press or something. It wasn't that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. But afterwards, they began to spin this thing in, in, in different directions, because it was clear in those meetings who was who was really the person in charge. Um, because they were afraid to lead, they were afraid to step up and step out, and he wasn't. And so then they would they would sort of rewrite the history, and, and question things, and then ultimately several years later they felt the need to finally take action nothing had significantly changed in the interim that that made it worse than it was when we started but but they were then finally only then willing to step out and step up and so what did they do well they just then began to bash chuck in spite of the fact that over a long period of time his ministry had borne great fruit and it hadn't exalted him he he was he was the most reluctant guy in the world to take over the leadership and become a bishop in that thing and i know that because i was there i was the first person AMIA ordained and so i know that chuck was reluctant to ordain me within the diocese of within the the, the domain of the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina, because he respected authority and respected the hierarchy and respected the bishop there. And so it was only when the Rwandan bishop said, you're going to participate in this and act like a bishop, that he did. So there's—but I saw this. And and so here, with this thing, you can see that that this jealousy is coming out with the Pharisees. They haven't been able to heal these people. I mean, the lady had an issue of blood for 12 years. We don't know how long the leper had been that way. We know that the synagogue ruler didn't go to them. He went to Jesus for the healing. We know that these guys, these blind guys, have ascribed uh, to Jesus that he is the son of David. Nobody's ascribing that to them. And so they just assume that he's a counterfeit. But begs the question, why would that be? (laughs) Why would there be a counterfeit Messiah in Capernaum? It just doesn't make sense. But nonetheless, it didn't have to at this point. And so you can see their hearts are already hardened. And I believe that they become like Pharaoh. With Pharaoh, it says God hardens his heart. But really, the best way to interpret that is, is that he strengthened his heart in the direction that he wanted to go because God had a plan. And so he said, Pharaoh, if you want to go that way, I'll give you strength. You're making a decision. He treated him like a free moral agent and, and let him go down that road. <laughs> and, and I believe that's exactly what's happening here, that, that they have m- made a decision from their jealousy. Pharaoh's was based in fear, but also jealousy of, of the living God and of Moses. And here, I, I think it's exactly that same thing, is that their hearts are hardened against Jesus early on, and it's all completely from jealousy. But Matthew is telling us, he gives us these particular examples um, to show us. Sometimes he tells us directly what he's doing, that this is fulfillment of prophecy, and sometimes he just does these things, and he focuses on specific uh, miracles that Jesus does in order that the Jews would immediately recognize, oh, this is all the stuff Messiah would do. And so he doesn't have to point specifically to these things, but as I've shown you, that comes directly from uh uh, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. So so here we got Jesus doing the things that Messiah does, and now we're finally starting to see only nine chapters in, serious, serious opposition from the Pharisees. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.